So listen as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live. Since you are standing firm in the Lord, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would do the, the work that your word promises, that you would make our love increase, that we would be a church that cares for one another, that serves one another. And Lord, that you would make our love increase for our neighbors, that we would be quick to share the gospel, willing to serve those in need. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, strengthen our hearts that we would be blameless and holy in your sight. Lord, for those that have not put their trust in Jesus, I pray that having heard your word read and now hearing it preached, that they would respond in faith and find forgiveness in you. Lord, for those of us who call Jesus Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us to serve you, that you would transform our hearts and lives. Father in heaven, we come rejoicing in the grace that has been given to us since we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. How do you deal with difficulties and disappointments? I mean, let's just start small with the little things that frustrate us in life. Perhaps a sudden change of plans throws everything out of whack. How do you handle that? Or how about when the traffic grinds to a halt and you have places to be that are better than being here? Or what about when weather changes your plans and dampens your expectations? How do you handle those smaller frustrations? But, but consider then the bigger tragedies of life. How do you deal with those kinds of tragedies, of broken relationships, or of diagnosis of illness? Norman Malone's childhood was filled with tragedy. As a young boy, he tried to fend off his father's violence. Even now, decades later, when he describes it, he, as a grown man, tears up, remembering. Remembering the morning he and his brothers woke up in the hospital. Their dad had come in after they'd fallen asleep and attacked them with a hammer. Norman was left partially paralyzed. This 10-year-old boy could no longer use his right hand. And he was heartbroken. 
because he feared this would mean the loss of that which was most important to him, not just the disintegration of his family in this violence and attempted murder, but, but now the loss of the one thing that had provided him with so much joy and comfort, music. He was a kid who loved his piano lessons, but he only has one usable hand. But Norman did not give up his love for music. He studied. He became a high school choral director, teaching others. He's, he's described by his students, generations of students who, who heard him teach in Chicago in Lincoln Park High School, a, a large school. Students who, who were inspired by his love for music. Students whose lives were not merely changed because they could now sing, but changed because they had a reason to sing. He served as a mentor, a father figure to his students, using his love of music to inspire them. And they always saw him stand in front, conducting with just one hand because the other couldn't be used. His constant endurance and encouragement to them. Endurance in the midst of adversity inspires others. Standing firm in the midst of suffering can be an encouragement to others. You see, that's what Paul is talking about. What, what we looked at last week and what we look at this week, it's, it's really all wrapped together. Last week we were looking at Paul's desire to encourage the church and his, his sending of Timothy to be an encouragement to them. He needed to know. He needed to hear. Are they remaining faithful to the gospel? Are they standing firm? Do they still believe? Or has the tempter led them astray? Well, now we have the report. Timothy has returned. And so we see how we can be encouraged by the report of others standing firm. See, sometimes when we think about suffering and endurance, we think about it in, in very personal terms. What do I need to do to get through this? And Paul gave us a glimpse at some of that last week. One was, was we needed to know that suffering is part of living in a broken world. We should expect it. We also have a mission as a church to proclaim the gospel, and so we have a reason to keep moving forward. And then here, this week, he turns to offer the encouragement that when you stand firm, then you can encourage others. That there is this, there is this gospel relationship. And, and notice what, 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 what Paul says when he hears this report coming back from the Thessalonian church. And and this wasn't as simple as picking up a telephone or sending off a text or shooting an email because to get news from Thessalonica to Corinth would have taken weeks. If Timothy traveled over land, it's a 10 or 11 day journey from southern Greece to northern Greece. There's no high-speed metros to get you there. And if he's there long enough, even just a handful of days to hear an update from the church, then it's another 10 or 11 days to return. And so Paul has eagerly waited news, but also perhaps with the fear that, well, the last time we were there, riots broke out. If Timothy makes it back into the city, he might not make it back out. And so we are excited then with Paul when the report comes. Look again at verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. Do you, do you see what Paul is saying? Because he has this good news, he is encouraged. 
their endurance and suffering encourages Paul. And Paul uses the word here, good news, which is the word gospel. It's normally used in, a, in, in the New Testament in a very explicit way, a, a technical way, describing the good news about Jesus, the good news about Christ, the gospel of God, what God has done. Here he's using it in that broader ancient sense that could have been done anytime something really good was announced. And so he's saying, when I heard that you are standing firm, that is good news to me. But more than I think, and what commentators point this out, that it's gospel because it's good news about the gospel. It's gospel news because they are standing firm because of the gospel, because God has encouraged them, because God has strengthened them. And so the good news is good news about the gospel that comes to us from God. And so it's a gospel message that has impacted their lives. And so Paul rejoices. Their faith encourages him. Because he's describing for, for us and for them this mutual longing that he has. We see it again in verse 6 as he continues. That Timothy's come and, and told us that you always have pleasant memories of us. That you long to see us just as we also long to see you. It's the pastor's heart for his people. Paul saying, I preached the gospel to you like a spiritual father. You are my spiritual children like the pastor who cares for his people, the shepherd for his flock. Paul is saying, we are in this tender, mutual relationship. I long to be with you as you long to be with me. And this pastoral longing maybe, maybe helps us even this week as a church makes sense of that very good news that Tom Har, our associate pastor, is being called to serve in another place. And yet, you like me perhaps had that but if they go there, that means they're leaving here. And when we announced the news to our family, one of my kids said, I miss them already. Because there will be heartache and longing as they go. Ones who have loved us so well for the decade they've been members here, for the eight years that he has served on staff, we will miss them, but we will also in the hope of the gospel, hear reports from him of the good news of the work God is doing in their lives. And so it's this tension that we find even here with Paul and the Thessalonians of a desire to be with them, but the call to keep going with the gospel. There is a heartfelt relationship here. And so when Paul hears good news about the faith and love of the Thessalonians, he is encouraged. And, and, and we notice in verse 7, he's not encouraged merely because he heard a report that, oh, all of your distress, all of the trials, all of the tribulations have disappeared. You, you endured because the tempter is gone. There are no temptations. No. I mean, Paul is not saying that, that, it's, that he's, he rejoices because his own circumstances have gotten much better than they were in Thessalonica when he was run out of town, when, when things were in chaos. No, Paul's ministry is one of suffering, of sickness, of pain, of persecution. But what does Paul say in verse 7? Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, in, in our distress and persecution, I, I'm not rejoicing because my circumstances has cha have changed. No, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. The gospel has transformed you. You have trusted in God, and so we without any of our circumstances getting any better, without any expectation, and actually we saw last week, the expectation is you will keep suffering. 
So his expectations haven't changed. What has changed for him? He's gotten the good news. The Thessalonian believers, having heard the gospel, are remaining faithful to it. They are standing firm. He is encouraged because of their faith, their trust in God. And he doesn't say that this is merely a a little pick-me-up that can sort of get him through today, that will allow him to just sort of grit his teeth and get through. No, no, he continues. He he enlarges our, our view of how we can be encouraged by others when they endure in the midst of suffering. Because look at verse 8. He's not merely grinning, grinning his teeth and bearing it. What does he say? For now we really live. This is what life is meant to be. And we might think, Paul, you have terrible expectations. You are suffering and in pain. The church is still weak. The church could be destroyed. They are still under the assault of Satan. And you are saying, now... Now I really live? Yes, because he's describing his life in the hope of the gospel. So you and I might, might measure our lives by, well, what, what promotion could I get? What grade will I get? What accolade will I achieve? We want to measure our life by those kinds of measures. We want to measure by the, the places we can go, the conveniences we can have. We want to put our feet up and rest. We want to gather stuff that will make us feel, this will make me happy. This is what life is really meant to be. But what does Paul say? Having heard that you are standing firm in your faith, now I really live. That's a life measured by the gospel. And so that Paul is encouraged to now burst forth in giving thanks to God. Look at verse 9. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you. If this rhetorical question, there's no way I could, I could give enough thanks to God having heard this good news. God has sustained you in the midst of suffering, and that's an encouragement to me. So it'll say in verse 10, night and day we pray most earnestly. When do you pray? Night and day. How do you pray? Most fervently, most earnestly, most passionately. I mean, Paul is, is he's, he's sort of throwing superlatives on top of each other so that it, we, our English translations make it much more readable because he's just, he, he's so excited that his sentences don't even, don't even flow all the way through. He, he rejoices in praise to God because he hears of the faith of the Thessalonian believers. Night and day we pray most earnestly. We rejoice because of what we have heard about you. And so we see the faith, the endurance of the Thessalonians is an encouragement to Paul. But, but you also see that it's an, meant to then be an encouragement back to the Thessalonians. That because Paul has been encouraged, he now is encouraging them. This reciprocal pastoral relationship their encouragement comes to him. His encouragement goes back. That's what, exactly what he's saying in verse 10. Night and day we pray most earnestly. I have joy in the presence of God because of you. And now I want to come to you again so that I can supply what is lacking in you. I can strengthen you. You have strengthened me so that I can strengthen you. Paul, even back in verse 6, we, we notice Timothy has just now come to us. 
just now he's arrived. I heard this good news. I had to write this down to be an encouragement back to you. And it's possible that Timothy was given the task then of taking this letter right back up to Thessalonica. Paul, I just got here. Did I not tell you how terrible the trip was? How long and exhausting? And, and now I have to just turn around and, and go right back? Yes, because T- Timothy, you've just now come with this good news. We have to take an encouraging report back to them. Their encouragement of us is meant to be encouragement back to them. I mean, that's the context of Paul's entire letter, a context of encouraging the church. So then when he says, how can we thank God enough for you? The joy that he has is meant to be a joy that flows over to be an encouragement to them, to build joy in them. He wants to supply what is lacking in their faith. He wants to encourage and strengthen them. And you see that this then is a reminder to us of the mutual relationships we need to have in church. That even as Paul, encouraged by them, bursts forth in praise to God, that his praise comes back to them as encouragement so that they can praise God, which will encourage Paul, do you see how that's meant to work? I mean, you could have, and there are seasons of life because of illness or family circumstance when you you will need to to worship from your home or from a hospital room, and you can't gather with us weekly. But there's a reason we are called in the Scriptures to gather together. You need to hear the brothers and sisters in the church that you've prayed for, those that you know are suffering. You need to hear them sing songs of praise to God. You need to hear them acknowledge that that Jesus Christ is Lord, that they believe in the resurrection of the dead even in the midst of their suffering because their praise will encourage and strengthen you. Because your other option is to just go through life based on how you feel on any given day. To merely be tossed by the tides of life and you feel discouraged and depressed and so that's the only perspective you have. But if you come and you are held up by your brothers and sisters in the gospel, that their perseverance encourages you, then you can persevere. And your perseverance encourages them so that you uphold one another, so that you are not merely tossed by circumstance, but you are pointed toward the gospel, the good news. That's why you need to be connected. I mean, that's why something as simple as a picnic is meant so that you can learn other people's names and start conversations that will build into gospel-centered relationships. That's why community groups and Sunday school are meant to give you places to connect with others so that the gospel is part of your, your ordinary, everyday conversations as we strengthen and encourage one another. And Paul's encouragement going back to them then in verses 11, 12, and 13 become a prayer of praise and blessing, a prayer of praise to God, a pleading with God to work, but a prayer of blessing. Paul even changes the tenses of his verb. He uses a more formalized style, acknowledging that that now we've stepped into prayer and pastoral blessing. And what does he say in verse 11? Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Remember, it's Satan who's been blocking the way, and so the only one with power enough to clear the way would be God himself. And that's what Paul is praying for. May God clear the path, remove all the obstacles so that we can be an encouragement to you. And, and this is a small detail here, and, and really in, in lots of ways this is an aside to the, the main thrust of, of Paul's 
message here, but, but I want you to notice this point, that when Paul begins to pray, he prays to God the Father and our Lord Jesus. See, maybe you have heard the rumors that the divinity of Christ, the fact that Christians call Jesus God himself, was something that was really added much later. Maybe even something Jesus didn't claim for himself or that the early believers didn't claim. But, but notice here that Paul is taking Old Testament descriptions, the language of Father, the language of Lord, and he's applying it to both God the Father in heaven and Jesus Christ. He's taking divine titles, giving them to Jesus, and he's praying to Jesus. And, and remember, the Thessalonian letters are probably the first New Testament documents written down. From the very beginning, the claim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He is Lord Almighty, Yahweh Himself, has been at the core of the Christian message. This was not a legend added much later. This is at the center of the gospel message. And notice even here, it's almost an aside. This isn't the main point of this passage. Paul hasn't stopped and said, now, in our systematic theology class, let's talk about Christology and who Jesus Christ is. No, what's he doing? He's writing a, a pastoral letter to a church to encourage them, and he bursts forth into prayer. And that prayer, as one commentator points out, unobtrusively and spontaneously includes the recognition that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is the Lord. It's at the center of the Christian message that Jesus is the Lord. And so Paul is writing to encourage this church. He bursts forth into this prayer, which is meant to be a blessing on them. And now in verses 12 and 13, his prayer becomes a, a prayer that God would equip them. That the Lord Jesus, Yahweh himself, verse 12, would make their love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Again, it's that pastoral longing. We love you, church. May your love continue to increase. But that's the good news Paul had just heard, that they were standing firm in their faith and love. And now he wants that, that love to continue to grow, to increase, to overflow, to become a, a, a mess that spreads throughout the church, that there's love everywhere. We can't get it cleaned up. It's everywhere. That's his heart for the church, that they would love and serve each other, that they would give their lives for each other. But he presses them even further. He says, may your love for each other and for overflow and increase and for everyone else. The people, Paul, that are persecuting us, those are the people we're called to love. You see, gospel love, though, has no limits and no boundaries. It will serve even those that attack us, serve even those that reject us, because it's a love that we see comes from the Lord and a love rooted in the love he has shown to us, that Jesus himself gave his life for us. And so Paul continues praying that God himself, the Lord Jesus, would strengthen your hearts. He wants the church to be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. He wants them to be blameless and holy, without fault, 
welcomed into God's family, forgiven. See, the call of the gospel, the call of Jesus is to come just as you are. But it doesn't mean that having responded then in faith, you should stay just as you were. No, your life should be transformed so that as love increases in your life, as you are changed, you will become blameless and holy. You will look more and more like God himself, like Jesus, your Savior. And it's a reminder here again of the ministry of Jesus Christ, that he is the one who does the work of forgiving our sins. Paul is not telling the church, hey, church, get it together so that when God shows up here, you don't get in trouble. This is not him warning them, you know, you better get your room clean before mom gets up here and sees what a mess it is. No. No, this is a prayer that God himself would transform them from within so that when Jesus arrives in his power and glory, we are recognized to be holy and blameless because of the work of Jesus Christ. And again, remember, and and we've said this multiple times looking at these letters, this letter to the Thessalonians, the, the warning here that Jesus is coming again, we saw it at the end of chapter 2. We, it's here again at the end of chapter 3. It's a warning to those who don't believe. If you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ, then when he shows up and you stand in the presence of God and Jesus arrives with all his holy ones, then you will stand under his judgment. Because whether holy ones, and it's a, it's a broad enough term in the scriptures to include the church, Christians who have been made holy, those who have put their trust in Christ and are described as holy ones. Or in the Old Testament, it's often used as as a descriptive phrase to describe angelic armies. And whichever sense it means, or maybe it's all of that, when Jesus returns and those he has made holy are raised from the dead, blameless and holy in his sight, or when Jesus arrives with his conquering armies of angelic warriors, you and I, if we have not put our trust in Christ, stand condemned. And so the call on you today is to turn and believe, trust in Jesus. And if you have acknowledged Jesus to be your Lord and God, then you see that he is the one transforming you to make you holy. His love lets you turn from sin. You and I have been forgiven by Jesus to live lives of gospel obedience. Do you see what Paul is telling us? Even this warning that Jesus is coming again is an encouragement to the church. Because I recognize that I've, I've not answered all of your questions, even in two sermons, about suffering in this world. Because we're still left with questions. We still have the, the brokenness, the heartache in our lives. We still think of specific circumstances in our lives or specific people we know and love who continue to suffer. We still look at injustice and evil in our world and think, why? What's going on? How do we endure? And so I don't think I've answered all of your questions, but, but what we're reminded at the end of chapter 2 and here at the end of chapter 3 is that Jesus is coming again. Coming as the Lord, he will not let injustice remain. God will bring his glory to bear, and so trust yourself to him. And what Paul is reminding the Thessalonians, and so because it's God's word spoken to us, he's reminding us that when we see others endure in the face of suffering, we can be encouraged. And their encouragement of us then becomes encouragement back to them when we acknowledge that to them, when they see us then endure in the midst of suffering. Our perseverance encourages others. It leads us 
to give praise to God. It strengthens us. Just hearing that good news strengthens us for continued endurance. We stand firm in the hope of the gospel. Mr. Malone, the choral teacher who persevered after using, losing the use of his right hand, perseveres in his love for music. And at home in his apartment, when he sits at his baby grand piano, he continues to play. After his accident, he discovered there are composers that write music for the left hand. And so for 60 years, he has practiced. Such that his neighbors assume it must be somebody playing with both hands. It's that beautiful. It's that technical. It's that wonderful. Playing this classical music wafting through his apartment building. But he's only been playing in private. An interviewer asks him, he says, a lot of people, when they have a special gift, they like to show it off. With the implied question, why aren't you showing off? And Mr. Malone stops, and he thinks about his students picking out the notes on the piano, playing a simple accompaniment to one of their songs, and he says, I thought I was showing off with my students. They were the ones that got to sing. They were the ones who, who got to enjoy music. And he says it so simply and humbly, recognizing that his perseverance has been an encouragement to others. But none of his students knew his full skill. They'd never heard him really play. And it wasn't until he was outed by a neighbor to a local newspaper music critic that his story became known. The newspaper arranged a public concert so that Norman Malone could gather with his neighbors and they could hear this music. Beautiful classical music with one hand sitting in his lap unused. A reminder of the suffering and the pain in his past, his perseverance through life, such that the, the, the news reporter describes this, this concert as a symphony of survival. Not a song of suffering, but a symphony of survival, so that when the concert ends, the room erupts in applause, a standing ovation. This song, this symphony of survival. May the Lord strengthen your hearts so that you will stand firm.